Good morning. The scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1 through 6. And yes, you may be seated. (laughs) Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full, two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you again. Um, so, ask you to turn your scriptures to Ecclesiastes and uh, in your device or in your Bibles. And we always say this is kind of middle right to the middle of your Bible. You know, I did ask, I have somebody ask me, uh, essentially the question was, um, do you need, you know, 15 messages to get through Ecclesiastes? Because uh, it sounds like he's just kind of repeating himself. And I thought that was a fair question. I actually had thought about seven messages initially, and then I just began to see that there's a lot of unity in this book. And even though for years it has just tied people in knots, like what, how do all these things relate? It turns out that the book of Ecclesiastes is somewhat of, um, of a journey. I know that sounds a little bit trite, but the, the subtitle of the message series is called A Search for a Meaningful Life. And one of the things I haven't really said is that if you follow this, um, you won't just search. You will actually find out what the preacher believes is a meaningful life. And, you know, it it occurs to me that it's just kind of really an amazing thing that we've got, you know, 300-something people uh, sitting here and opening a book that is, you know, 3,000 years old to hear what an ancient writer has to say about life. But we believe that these are words that are inspired by God and that it is going to direct us. Now, some of the themes that are going to come up, the repeated themes, are things like uh, toil and justice and injustice and wisdom and folly and hardship. And some of those are going to feature in the text today. One thing I do want us to note, though, is that every time he introduces a theme, he's going to develop it a little bit further. So today in the reading, you heard that once again, he's going to come to the conclusion that that we ought to enjoy life. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the development. So what happens before this recommendation that we enjoy life is the fact that we live in a very harsh world. There are circumstances that make it difficult to do so. So I believe that in the past, I think in the context of uh, occasionally we have something called parent-child dedications here. And I remember relating a story of a supervisor I once had when I worked at at UPS, and he made the remark that he and his wife had decided not to bring children into a world like this. And at the time, I I kind of flippantly just said, okay, man, I'll raise the next generation. And, you know, we kind of laughed it off a little bit. But, you know, the closer I get to launching my kids out into a world like this, the more sobering it becomes. Because there are, there are things that we just don't want our kids to have to experience. You know, some of those things, and I have to acknowledge this right out front, 
Uh, many of us in, in the West have been largely shielded from some of these harsh realities. And I also have to acknowledge that there are classes and races that have been more shielded from these realities than others. Today, we're going to look at a message entitled, A Handful of Quiet in a Harsh World. So we are going to look at several harsh realities, and and Heidi just read some of them. And uh, one of the reasons we enjoy sitting at the feet of the preacher is that he just doesn't duck. He is going to look straight at hard things, and uh, we are going to do so as well. Um, But I do think this is one of those times where it's really, really helpful to notice one of the things that we've pointed out several times, that he is approaching this under the sun. In other words, he is limiting himself to a certain perspective, and limited in that way, it actually is rather bleak. But we are going to get to hope, I promise. So let's look at three harsh realities in this world, and then we're going to see the preacher's recommendation in light of those things. The first harsh reality is the reality of corruption. We see this in verse 16. I think it's worth reading. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. You know, if there is any place where one would hope for justice, it would be the place of justice, the courts. If there's any place where you would hope that righteousness would be rewarded and wrong punished, it would be the place of righteousness. But even there, he says, and he has it twice, there was wickedness. He says wickedness twice, wickedness. The repetition clues us in that this was something that was pervasive through the system that he observed. Now, if one is surprised that that would be the case, later on in chapter 5, he says, don't be surprised. Just listen to his words. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, so same words, don't be amazed at the matter, for the high official is washed by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. What is he observing in the provinces? He's observing that a a worker goes to sue for his, his lost wages, and he finds out that the official has already been bribed. He also notices that the bribery goes all the way up. There's an official watching that official, and above that there's an official watching that official, and they're all on the take. Now, Lady Justice, if you've ever seen that uh, statue, Lady Justice, she holds a pair of scales and she holds a sword, so that's equity and the power of the state, and then normally she has a blindfold that justice is supposed to be blind. Well, it is true in his day that she set the scales down and uh, she is peeking and her hand is behind her back because she's on the take. Now, I'm not speaking of courts in which a decision, you know, a civil case doesn't go like you had hoped it was. I mean, if it wasn't a hard thing to decide, it wouldn't have gone to court in the first place. But we're talking here about genuine justice malfunctions, which makes us ask a question. Does such wickedness, that's what he calls it, does wickedness pay? Does it pay? Verse 17, I said in my heart, this is important, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there's a time for every matter and for every work. So it turns out, according to the preacher, that it will not pay in the end. The Bible's really consistent in answering that question that way. There's something really fascinating about what he says in verse 17, 
that there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now, if you were with us last week, you would have heard the the seasons passages where over and over he said there's a time for this, a time for that, and that God is the one who sets the seasons. Well, it turns out that in a way, justice is in a season too. There's going to be a time for justice. However, right now, injustice often exists. You know, and really that troubles us. Why would God let it be so? If God can reverse injustice, why not reverse it right now? Now, that's a really good question. And Koheleth, the preacher, has some thoughts. But before we consider it, just a word of warning. Scripture has much to say about justice, injustice, and the ways of God. And so the preacher's answer is not the only answer, and it's not the full answer, but it is a very Koheleth-like answer. And so here's how I would like to summarize it. Sometimes God allows something that he intends to judge to exist. Okay, you following thus far? He allows it to exist for a time, temporarily, in order to demonstrate something to those he intends to save. That is Kohelis' answer. Look at his observation in verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. His reflection is that God is testing us. He is sifting us. He is making something evident, letting us see what we are made of. Why? Well, maybe to teach us something that we are very, very slow to learn about ourselves. The wickedness in the courts show us that we are very much like beasts, like animals. Like, well, I don't like that. Yeah, well, I don't like it either. But you think about the, the, the kingdom of you know, wolves in a prey. Now, now, wolves are pack animals, but at some point, you know, when they make a kill, what are they going to do? They're going to drive, the, drive off the less dominant wolves while they eat their fill. It's greed, pure and simple. And then if there's something left over, then, then they, they turn it over to the rest of the pack. You know, in some ways, we are worse than the rest of creation because animals kill, but they don't do it with malice. We, however, have learned to callously ignore the hurt of others while we gain. And so in that sense, we are like animals and worse than animals in the sense that we are greedy. We also share something else with them, exactly with them. And what might that be? Verses 19 and 20. Now, as I'm reading this, I want you to notice the word all, all. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies so dies the other. Okay, so we share mortality. And then they all have the same breath and no man has advantage over the beast for all is vanity. It is brief. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Now we need to think about this just a little bit so we don't hear him saying something that he's not saying. First of all, we all have breath. God calls it in Genesis chapter 1, the breath of life, and it is what he gave to all living creatures. And when that breath leaves us, we die, as do they. In this regard, we have no advantage over the beast, for all of us live a relatively brief time, vanity. We share a common origin. Now, this is something that I actually missed much of my life. In Genesis 2.19, it specifically says that now out of the ground, okay, dust, 
dust. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. Now, if you had asked me, what was Adam formed out of? I would have said the ground. What were the animals formed out of? I think I probably would have said the word of God. No, he formed them too out of the ground. And so, Kohela's point is that we were all formed from the dust of the ground, and we will return to the earth in which we were formed. He is limiting himself to what he can see and what he can prove. And with, in that perspective, he cannot prove any possible advantage. Now, did he not know or did he not believe in an afterlife? You cannot say he did from this passage alone. Though there are several reasons for believing that he does. He is limiting his observation here, right here, to the fact that death is yet more proof that you don't control human life. Immediately, he demonstrates that he is aware that there are other possibilities. If you're looking at your scripture, look at verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. And then later in chapter 12, he remarks this, the spirit returns to God who gave it. Okay, so it is clear that he knows that there is a possibility that the spirit of man and the, and the spirit of beast are different. One goes upward, one goes downward. One just stays in the dust. And later he says the spirit of man returns to God who gave it. So it's clear that he understands the possibilities. But don't miss his point here. From his self-limiting standpoint, he is agnostic. And he asks the question, who knows? Because just from what you're observing, here is a dead man and here is a dead dog. He's saying you cannot tell what happened to their spirits simply by what you're observing right here. Scripture, of course, is not agnostic. Now, several times I've said that Ecclesiastes is middle right of the book of Psalms. So if you go back to the book of Psalms, okay, chapter 49, we read very, very clearly that there is a distinction between the fate of the righteous and the fate of the wicked. I think verses 13 to 15 are worth reading. This is the path, says the psalmist, of those who have foolish confidence. All right. These would be people who do not accept the lordship of God. They have foolish confidence in themselves. And yet after them, people approve of their boasts. In other words, while they're on earth, people are saying, you're doing great. But like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, in the resurrection. Their form shall be consumed by Sheol, the grave, with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, from the power of the grave, for he will receive me. Selah, think about that. Those who have foolish confidence... Those who do not put their faith in God, who will ransom, this is the God who ransoms the soul from the power of the grave. To such people, the preacher has some advice, and we find that advice in verse 22. The advice of Koheleth to the person who says, I put my trust in myself, there's nothing outside of me, is this. I saw that there's nothing better than that that man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? The best a person who can do can do by putting their confidence in themselves is to enjoy what temporary satisfaction they can. 
Now, this advice we've seen a little bit earlier in chapter 2, verse 24, and I'm going to put this up. There's nothing better for a person. Maybe I'll put it up. Nope, I don't think so. Just listen. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Okay, so far it's the same advice. But listen, this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So the observation in chapter 2 just a few weeks ago was that there is no enjoyment in your toil apart from God. Apart from God. For apart from him, who can even have enjoyment? In other words, even the enjoyment of what we do on this earth is a gift from God. And if you're going to say, I'm not going to take this from God, then the best you can do is simply enjoy your toil. So in all this here, we have learned some pretty harsh realities from this observation that there is wickedness in the place of justice. Wickedness in the place of justice shows us that we are very, very much like beasts, and we share a mortality with beasts. So, pretty, uh, pretty bright thus far. But he continues. But wait, there's more. The harsh reality of oppression in verses 1 through 3. Now, this is what was read by Heidi this morning, and these are some of the saddest verses in what is a pretty dark book. Now, what I want you to note here is that the preacher, and we're going to read these verses, but the preacher himself gets really, really intense. He has words like, behold. In other words, he's like, he's like, look at this. Can you believe this? He says words like comfort and tears. Those are emotional words. And you can hear it in his repetition when he says there is no comfort. Listen. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, that's frustrating, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who's not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. The teacher's observation is that oppression is not something likely to change in the world. Strong people will take things by force, usually with a threat of violence. Robberies still happen. Large stores artificially lower prices and then drive their competition out of the the town, and then they raise them back up. Organized crime, with its protection racket, still exists out there. And the frustrating thing is that the ones who could do something about it are the very ones who are perpetrating it. When you read the the words, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than those who are alive, what you should hear in this is lament. It is lament in his statement that the dead are more fortunate than those who are stuck in such a situation where they have no recourse and nobody can comfort them. In fact, he says, feeling pretty cynical here, it may have been better not to have been born at all. He is not advocating self-harm. What he is doing, he is lamenting the sad state of things, which is a proper response. If you and I do not feel these things as deeply, if we're a little bit more cheerful about this, then chances are we need to check and see whether or not that comes from our hope or just comes from complacency. We've got fuzz in our ears. You know, this is so dark and so sad that I feel 
compelled to push pause for just a moment and attempt to encourage you with the hope that's offered in wider scripture. You know, Christian writers readily acknowledge that the most challenging challenge to Christianity is the problem of suffering. The classic challenge goes something like this. If God wants to stop evil, but he cannot, then he is powerless. If he is able to stop evil, but not willing, then he is malevolent. Either way, the God of the Bible is non-existent. Now, there are many helpful ways in addressing this question. I'm going to put a few of them um, on, on the board. There's no way that we can possibly cover everything, but I would point you that there are several writers that have engaged with this question in really helpful ways. One of them is, is C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He goes right at this question of suffering. More recently, uh, the late Timothy Keller wrote something extremely accessible in the book, The Reason for God. He just has a, a beautiful way of, of communicating. And then even more recently, Rebecca McLaughlin in Confronting Christianity deals with this in a super, super helpful way. And the truth is, any worldview that has anything to say must do something with the question of suffering. And they do different things with it. There are karmic religions that say that you just need to cease from your striving or that if you are suffering, it is your fault. It is coming back to you. There are honor religions that would say that suffering is something to be embraced. Go ahead and be the kamikaze pilot. Then there is something called secular humanism, which basically says, live it up, ignore it, just do the best you can, and it simply doesn't deal with it. Just because it's so important, I would like to point you to some of the unique ways that Christianity addresses suffering. Now, this deserves a message of its own, and perhaps we'll, at the end of this, we'll have a one-time-off topical message or something. So it deserves it, but just briefly, I would like to point out the way that the Christian worldview addresses this. And this is one of those uh, places where Pastor Chris Bronze, who's just a man that I've, I've enjoyed listening to, this is his summary. And I just thought, like, wow, this is like a crockpot. This has been distilling for a while, all right? So I'm going to put a couple ways that Christianity deals with this. First of all, in the person of Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, God suffered. You know, there's one thing if, if God was the person that was inflicting suffering on us and just stands apart and distant, but God took on flesh and dwelt among us and experienced it, and so that he is personal. He knows what suffering is. He is not detached. He is a personal God, and he knows your name. Second is the possibility of future personal love. There's the promise that we have of an afterlife, a time where the God who knows your name will wipe away all your tears, that your loved ones will be with you, and that the peoples of all the nations, the tribes and tongues and nations will be there as well. The Christian religion offers a future personal love. The Christian religion is based on a resurrection, the fact that God himself engaged in suffering and died and rose again so that those who believe in him and die with him will rise with him and be with him forever. And death and suffering will be undone. And I might add that in the meantime, we are to fight oppression. The Bible is clear 
We should not be the ones inflicting suffering, and we should be working to relieve it. Leviticus 19.13 uses very similar language. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. In other words, don't take from a person that which they require to live when it's within your power to pay it. When King David was confronted by the prophet Nathan, Nathan was telling him a story about some very unjust behavior. And King David, in righteous anger, says, show me that guy. His head is going to roll for this. He would not stand. Now, it turns out Nathan flipped the tables on him. But that was a righteous indignation reaction to oppression. And it is good. And so if we don't feel this question as strongly as we should, it may be we've just not reckoned with it. Or maybe we've even allowed the good news of our Christian faith to to dull us to it, and that should change. So in summary, we've looked at two very harsh things, wickedness and corruption in the courts, and then oppression. There is one other, and what's interesting about this last one is that it may even be the source that greed and oppression flow from. And here is what it is, the harsh reality of rivalry, or you could even say cutthroat competition. His observation in verse 4 is this, that I saw that all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. All that frantic activity that we do, he calls it toil, and all that achievement where we stack up you know, accolades, he calls that skill and work. All of it, he says, is motivated by envy. We might say that it's keeping up with the Joneses in our personal life, or maybe in the business world, it is whatever it takes, cutthroat competition. You know, I think if uh, Koheleth could have gotten a load of the reality shows today, he just would have been like, like feasting, you know, just like, look at this. When you let rivalry and cutthroat go, you know those, those backstage interviews, you know, where they're just like, just, just going at each other, and then on stage, just, you know, stabbing each other in the back and begging, and just, it is just rivalry on display. Now, I appreciated one of the commentators who warned us not to press that word all too hard, because Kohelis got to give, give him some room to make his point and make it vigorously. His point here is that even though you could come up with maybe an exception, I mean, maybe there's work out there that's purely altruistic, or maybe there's art that's simply for art's sake, but he is saying that the human condition seems to be that we are wired to be frantic in our work and to throw elbows at our neighbors. So here we are with a pretty realistic picture of some harsh realities in life. And so here's kind of the the point of this message, all right? How do we respond? What does a Christian do? How does a Christian work in a harsh world, a world where these realities exist? He's going to mark out two ditches and then one path that we have to find. Verses 5 and 6, let's read them. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. It's graphic. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So he's going to mark out two foolish responses. This is a foolish response, he says, is folding of the hands. Now that is a picture of laziness. Just folding the hands, sitting back, 
consuming everything, and basically dropping out of life. We stop fighting. We eat up our resources. We eat up the resources of other people. And then he says what you're actually doing is devouring yourself. You're hurting yourself. Our behavior becomes to our own hurt. So there's one ditch, all right? Dropping out laziness. I'm not even going to compete. I'm not even going to work hard. Just too much. The other ditch, two hands full of toil and a striving after win. So this double-handed grabbing, this is the greed that he just talked about. This is the frenetic toil. This is the rat race. This is the dog-eat-dog. This is vanity. This is the person who says a 94% may be okay, but if I can get 104%, I'm going to kill myself to do it. If the Halloween candy bowl is left out, this is the one that, that you know, it says take one, and, and no one's watching. They grab the whole thing. This is, this, is the, uh, this is working from 6 to 6 p.m. because you just cannot rest. Maybe it can be just a little bit better. This is workaholics. This is, this is all of this, and the happiness that we seek in this is elusive. So there we have it, all right? So on one side, you've got dropping out. On the other side, you've got frenetic grabbing and grasping. And so what is the middle path? Well, the scripture says a handful of quietness. And you can read this as contentment. Now, we've heard before that we should enjoy our work. But here's something new. We haven't yet heard from the preacher what it is we're working for. And his answer to this would be a handful of quietness or contentment. A handful of quietness is an attitude that allows us to enjoy what we have. It's to have comfort at your table, being satisfied with its contents, even if it's simple. Proverbs 17 says, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Better to live on what a working man's wages would bring to the table than have a lavish banquet and have ulcers and not be able to sleep because of the rivalry and striving. So enjoying a handful of quiet is that middle road between dropping out and cutting throats. We don't drop out, we work hard. We don't grab and grasp and seek for more. No, we receive what we have with thankfulness. Now, is this enough, you ask? So you've got wickedness, oppression, and rivalry out there. The harsh realities is all we are asked to do is enjoy what's on our table after a hard day work. Well, no, no. The Bible is passionate about justice, but that is another time and another sermon. This passage says that we have to find our way to godly contentment. I'd like to take just a second and kind of back up and just take a a leisurely walk through Scripture. I'm going to point out a few things, just kind of like a, a tour guide. What does it look like to live with quiet, not strive? This goes all the way back to Genesis, verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now note that. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely or freely eat of every tree in the garden. And he makes an exception with that one tree. So in Eden, it literally means a walled garden. It was a place of safety. It was a place where the man and woman had no vulnerability, no self-consciousness, and they did not have to buffer themselves against a harsh reality. 
And God's instruction to them was work it and keep it. You know, a lot of times we think that, that work is a result of the fall. Oh no, it's not. God gave them meaningful work to do. Work it and keep it. And what were you supposed to do with the fruit that came from that work? Enjoy it freely, simply enjoying it. Of course, all that changed when they grasped what was not theirs, and they began to take the two-handed approach, and they didn't enjoy their handful of quiet. Toil became their portion, thorns and thistles and sweat and rivalry between the man and woman and pain and childbirth. It all came because of grasping. Cain and Abel, the first humans born, are basically prototypes of hostility. And so you have Abel, who had the blessing of God, doing his best, giving it to God, and having it received. And Cain was, was furious that God's blessing had descended on Abel. And so he began to strive against that good, and he rose up and he killed him. All of his, his toil and all his achievement was from envy of his brother, and he oppressed his brother by killing him. Later on, Abraham exhibited contentment. On one occasion, Abraham, who was like the father of, of nations, uh, he was forced to strive. He was forced to go out to war. And afterwards, what did he do? He didn't take the spoils greedily. Somebody offered it to him, and he said, no, 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 I'll just take what my young men ate, and he was content. Abraham lived a life in which he followed after God. He kept the covenant. He was looking for a land of peace. He understood how to enjoy what was before him. His grandsons, Jacob and Esau, also strove. Like Cain and Abel, they were, they were hostile to each other. But Jacob, God did something amazing in his life. And one day he did strive. He actually strove with God. And after that wrestling match with God in which he asked God to bless him, the very next thing we see is him giving away his possessions. And when Esau says, no, no, I've got enough, he says, brother, I have got enough. Now, Jacob was a colorful character, but at the end of his life, he says, my days have been few and hard, but he had seen his son, and he had seen where God was going to bring him rest, and he died a man of faith. He had learned not to strive. We could go on, but I'm going to kind of jump on over to another king of Israel, David, who wrote the immortal words that many of us know, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. He restores my soul. One way of putting what's happening here is that God provides everything that we need to make life possible. He may not give you the bells and whistles, but grass for sheep and water for sheep and a quiet place to enjoy them. God will provide everything we need to be possible. No rushing water to spook me, a place of quiet. And how does this reflect, affect me? It restores my soul. That is a handful of quiet. That is contentment. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. He gave us a warning against that fretful spirit that demands more than God provides to make life possible. That would be covetousness. And he says, watch out, guard against it. Luke 12. He said to them, take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness. And then he tells us what the lie is to anybody who's going to grab two handfuls. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
We fall prey to covetousness if we believe that our life consists of what we consume. Paul expanded on what we should content ourselves with in 1 Timothy. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we will carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, let us be content with those. Remember all the times where the preacher says there's no gain in Ecclesiastes. Paul says there is great gain for those who walk with God and accept his provision in this world. The author of Hebrews, who is actually unknown, adds the amazing truth that being free from the love of money, literally silver love, okay, you want to be free from the love of money, is actually a relational thing. Read this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, and this is mind-boggling. If you ask me how to be content, I don't know if this is what I would say. I'll never leave you or forsake you. For we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear What can man do to me? The promise that God will never leave us or forsake us is the basis of contentment. That he is our helper, that he calms our fears from living in a harsh world. You know, my my heart answers that question that's asked in that verse, what can man do to me with, are you kidding me? Man could do a lot. I mean, we just read about some of them. There's a publication called The Voice of the Martyrs, and you can sign up for um, a prayer list, and they'll send you, like, what is happening in the world to Christians today. And even in the last month, there's been a pastor who's been in a prison in Tehran for 10 years. In January 14th, there was a, a family that had to flee Egypt because of their faith. Nigerian Christians are being killed by Boko Haram every day. A pastor, um, the Christians in Nepal are being attacked by, by mobs, like now, right now. But God promises that he is the one who will comfort even those people, especially those people. They may deny me justice, but God says, I will give you justice, and I will never leave you. They may rob me and oppress me, leaving me in tears, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will help you. I will give you what is necessary for life. I will provide rest even in your dark places. And there are those of us who can only give and pray for those who are in active oppression, but we also must learn to enjoy our handful of quiet as we learn to be content with what we have because we live in relationship with God. He is ready to be my shepherd. He is ready to leave me to that. He is ready to give me green pastures and quiet waters. And he will become your shepherd if you open your heart to him today. So, as always, we're available to have those conversations. If you're in a position right now where you say, like, I'm either contented to drop out or I am striving and I'm just in a rat race, God says, it is possible for you to come to me and live in contentment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the teacher who takes a hard look and doesn't duck. So, Lord, I pray that we would, you would do the heart and you would do the work in our hearts today that needs to be done. 
Father, if we have become callous to the needs of others, Lord, I pray that you would make that clear to us. Father, if we are losing heart and wanting to drop out, that you would, you would encourage us. Or if we are falling into that trap of believing that our life is found in the abundance of what we possess, I pray you would convict us. Or I pray that you would uh, restore to us the joy of our salvation and that you would be to us a shepherd, that we'd find out what it means to take the gifts, the things that make life possible, and be happy and content with them today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.